good to be back with you this morning. I missed being with you last week, so glad to be back here. Uh, this, I'll we'll give you a warning, this is the time of year when allergies take over my body. I don't think I'm going to cry, but if it looks like I am, that's, that's probably why. And I couldn't resist singing out with those great songs, so you can pray my voice uh, uh, gets all the way through. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us in Christ. We thank you, though, that though we are separated from you, strangers, alienated, because of what we've done wrong, yet your kindness to us is expressed in bringing us near through the blood of Christ. He is our reconciliation to you. Lord, we give you praise and thank you. Thanks for that reconciling us to you through Christ, bringing us in Christ to you, that we may inherit his glory. We may share in his reward. Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray that as we look deeply at your word this morning, you would help us see more and more of the reality that you've called us to. And cause us to understand more of this thing we call church, what it is, how should we use it for your glory and our good. Lord, help us be better stewards of the resources you've given to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been going through the book of uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter. Now, this is called a pastoral epistle. And that's, it's pastoral in the sense that Paul wrote it to Timothy. And Timothy's a pastor. And Paul wrote this letter in order to help Timothy understand what he should do in his pastoral ministry. Hold on just one second. Uh, Jerry, do I need to do something? I'm getting a lot of feedback. Can you hear me okay? Everybody? Okay, so it's just feedback I'm hearing. I'll have to pretend that I don't hear it. It's like I'm hearing myself. I'm going to talk about how pastors ought to preach a sermon to themselves. This isn't exactly what I meant. (laughs) Nevertheless, we'll go on. Okay. Okay. This is called a pastoral epistle because it is Paul writing to Timothy to tell him how he should be a a pastor. Now, I think what we've seen so far in this letter has been helpful. I pray it has been to you. We've understood more about the nature of our church, what we ought to be doing as a church, how we ought to organize ourselves, what ought to be our priorities. But we've now come to the point in the letter as we get into the middle of chapter 4, where Paul switches focus and now addresses Timothy much more personally as his father in the Lord. So so we're hearing now the, the fatherly advice to Timothy, telling Timothy what must his concerns be as he grows as a pastor. Now, you might think to yourself, well, well, really, now, what does that have to do with me? This sermon's going to be all about what a pastor ought to do. How is that going to be relevant? Well, let me tell you, first of all, that Paul thinks it should be relevant because it's clear in this book that Paul intends this letter not only to be read by Timothy, but it is really an open letter for the entire church. So Paul thinks that it is relevant for every Christian. And I don't think it's hard for us to imagine why why Timothy would have a vested interest in the whole church knowing what his ministry ought to be about. As Paul explains the heart of pastoral ministry to Timothy, he makes 
the clear connection between what the ministry ought to be and how people ought to benefit from that ministry. So here's how it is applicable. The more the congregation understands what a pastor's job is, the more they can tune their spiritual lives around that job to grow through what the pastor does in his ministry. See, if you're going to go through the trouble of calling a pastor to the church and paying a pastor to be at the church, you should know how to maximally benefit from the pastor. And that's what understanding the pastor's ministry helps you to do. But the thing is, it's even more important than that. You see, I didn't invent this job. I like this job, but I didn't invent it. It was God's idea. The shape of pastoral ministry is something that God designed. It actually reflects his heart for his people. So the more we understand the nature of pastoral ministry, the more we understand God's heart for his people. And the more we can tune our lives to what he is doing in the world and benefit from his gift. So the passage for this morning is from the book of Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. And let me read that section to you now. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrines that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end... We toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. Persist in these things, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So now, what is Paul, the spiritual father, telling Young Timothy, his spiritual son. Well, what do we need to understand from this? Well, I think what Paul is doing here is he is answering three very important questions for pastoral ministry. One, what must a pastor do? Two, how must a pastor do it? And three, why must he do it that way? What, how, and why? Three really important questions. And again, these questions, I think, are very helpful for a pastor, but again, Paul intends the entire congregation to understand what this ministry is about so that the entire congregation can receive pastoral ministry. Now, let me quickly say something about the structure of this passage so we understand how to uh, uh, receive it. If you're looking at your Bibles, and I hope you are, I see most of you reading, you'll notice that this passage in most Bibles divides into two paragraphs, verses 6 through 10 and then 11 through 16. Now, as I was preparing this message, a big question in my mind was, okay, how do these two paragraphs relate to one another? 
So I need to understand Paul's flow of thought if I'm going to relay that to the congregation. And my conclusion is that I don't think Paul is transitioning at all from one paragraph to the next. I think he's doing what a lot of people do when they have something so important they want to communicate, and that is he repeats himself. I think the main point that Paul lays out in the first paragraph is the same as the second paragraph. Now, I say that so that you know that when we look at these three questions, why, how, what, why, and how, we're going to be looking from both paragraphs to understand them. And praise God for repetition. Paul thought that Timothy needed to hear the same thing twice. God thinks we need to hear the same thing twice, and and we usually do. So first, what must a pastor do? We, We see that in the very beginning. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, and by the way, brothers there is shorthand for brothers and sisters. He means the whole congregation together. If you put these things before the congregation, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So what must Paul do to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? He must put these things before the congregation. Now, what are these things? That's a critical question. I think the answer is they are everything that Paul has talked about in the book already. So they include, chapter 1, the right use of the law. These things include the fact that the law is not given to make us perfect, but to reveal our imperfections that drive us to Jesus. Paul says, tell that to the congregation. These things also include the centrality of the death of Christ for sinners. Let me read chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe on him for eternal life. Paul is saying, set that before the congregation. We also see the importance of prayer. This comes out in chapter 2. Men should lift up holy hands to God in prayer. Also the gift of modesty. Believers should dress in a way that edifies themselves and one another. And in chapter 3, we see the mystery of godliness. That Christ Jesus, in his death, resurrection, and ascension, is the secret to the godly life. It's not... um, It's about having that life in you, that life of Christ. Set that before the congregation. And finally, last week we saw that these things includes the freedom to enjoy all of God's good gifts, so long as it is done with thanksgiving and according to God's word. These are the things that Paul talks about in the letter, and he tells Timothy, set these things before the congregation. Now that verb, set before, literally means put something on their necks. Now, it doesn't mean I need you all to lay down right now. No, nothing's going to go on your necks. It's, it's metaphorical. It means to, to bring it to bear on their lives, to impress these things on the lives of the people deeply. Perhaps Paul has in mind the command in Deuteronomy 11. It says, God says to the people, Therefore, lay up these words of mine in your hearts and in your soul, And bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Those are instructions for what a father should do, as a father shepherds his family well. And Paul is applying that to the the pastor, saying, apply these things to the church. Bring these things, bring God's word to bear on the life of the congregation. The goal of the pastor is to bring God's word into the living rooms, the kitchens, the dining rooms, and even the bedrooms of God's people. 
The pastor must bring God's word to bear on all spheres of the congregation's life. And Paul repeats the same idea in the second paragraph. Look at verse 11. Paul says, command and teach these things. Again, these things refers to what Paul has said in his letter. And and he must command these things. So when we see in Scripture something that is a command from God, the pastor must bring that across as a command. So, for example, men must pray. The pastor ought not to say, you know, you might want to consider this if you get around to it. No. God's word contains commands, and they must be brought to the congregation as commands. The pastor also must be a teacher. Notice this. Command and teach these things. We see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4 that there is this gift of pastor-teacher. Pastor-teacher there is one gift. Now, it doesn't mean that all teaching is necessarily preaching, but it does mean that preaching, if it's true and biblical preaching, is teaching. That is to say, all preaching must explain to God's people the meaning of God's word. That's what preaching is. Preaching aims to help people understand God's word better. Now, preaching, no doubt, aims at the heart. We want you to experience it. We want your affections to be stirred, but we aim at your heart through your mind. We want you to understand truth that affects your heart. So the job of the pastor is to bring God's word to God's people. Now, friends, that carries with it some important implications for all of us. If God's plan for bringing his word to bear on your life is by preaching, then it means that God's plan is for you to receive that word into your heart by hearing the word preached. See, we who preach are doing our dead-level best to try to bring God's Word to you in such a way that's true to His Word and helpful for you to understand. That's our commitment to you. That's what week after week we are trying to do. And you need to posture, your, posture yourself in such a way to receive that Word. And that starts, number one, with recognizing that what is being preached is, first of all, God's Word. Listen to how Paul commends the Thessalonians. He tells them that, he says, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. See, the the Thessalonians there recognize something very good in Paul's mind. They recognize that preaching God's word is not sharing an opinion that can be accepted or dismissed. No, Preaching is taking God's word and explaining it, so we need to receive it as God's word. Friends, do you do that? Do you recognize that what is being put before you and taught and commanded is the word of God? I think a test to that question is, how much excitement do you have in coming to hear God's word on Sunday mornings? And think about it. If you... If you knew that the President of the United States was going to call you at a certain time, how would you approach that time? And for the illustration, say it's a president you really like, okay? So you don't have to worry whether you're on one side of the aisle or the other. Imagine a president you really like. How would you approach that phone call, right? You'd clear your schedule, wouldn't you? You'd make sure you, you were available and your mind was not distracted. Friends, how much more should we prepare ourselves with excitement when God is going to address us from his word? One pastor asked the question, how should we approach Sunday morning, the Sunday morning message? And his answer is this. 
with a heart, or I'm sorry, with a soul that is prepared, a mind that is alert, a Bible that is open, a heart that is receptive, and a life that is ready to spring into action. So is that the way you approach God's Word on Sunday mornings? Do you come ready to receive it and spring into action? Let me suggest two practical things that I would strongly recommend you do. Number one, take time to read the passage before you actually come to church. That's why we give out these cards. If you can't see one, there's probably some on the table as you go out, or there might be some in your pew. This is, a, this is the schedule, the preaching schedule. So we have the date and the passage that is going to be preached on. We, we go through the trouble of making these cards for you because we think you'll benefit from the sermon more if you have a chance to look over the passage before Sunday morning. And sometimes, often really, I usually send out an email, Steve or I send out an email, and that has the passage, and not only the, the, what the passage is, it has it right there in your email for you to read. So we're trying to do whatever we can to, to give you the passage, and we think it'll benefit you if you take time to read it beforehand. Read over the text, pray about the text, Think about what God might be showing you in that text. Second, pray that you would have a heart that is open to receiving his word. Pray that God would show you amazing things about Jesus and would show you how you need to conform your life to him. And I also want to suggest that you pray for one another in this too. You see, there is something to the fact that preaching God's word to the assembly is not a private tutoring session, one-on-one. It is preaching to the people of God. And therefore, one of the ways to prepare to receive that as the people of God is to pray for one another. And that is why we've given you this resource, the, uh, the church directory. What I've said before is the second most important book for a Christian, first being the Bible, second the church directory, so that you can pray for one another uh, in the faith. And see, what I'd recommend is when you, you just open it up Pray for other people here. We, we have the pictures, so even if you don't know their names, you can associate them with their faces. And as you have read the passage, pray for, for however you think they might benefit from that passage. Just pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that they, when they come on Sunday morning, would receive God's word with eagerness, with excitement, and they would, they would learn from it. We've given you these resources. I pray that you will use them. And if we do, I think God will use that to help us grow in our unity and our spiritual maturity. Okay, so the first thing we saw is what a pastor must do. He must preach the word. He must bring the word to bear on the lives of the congregation. Next thing is how a pastor ought to do this. And the answer is by being changed by the word of God himself. Look at verse 6 again. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice the relationship between the first part of the sentence and the second. Actually, it is a bit ambiguous, but if you look at the rest of the passage, it seems to be what Paul is saying here is that pastors who bring God's word faithfully to the congregation must themselves be trained, or you could also translate that word nourished, nourished upon the words of faith themselves. They must be nourished by the word. They must be nourished by good theology that they're following. In other words, pastors simply cannot use God's word for the purpose of nourishing others, feeding others, 
without also having it nourished themselves. Paul does not want Timothy to think of himself as merely a truth proclaimer without realizing that his heart must be affected by that same truth. Look at the contrast in verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. In other words, don't have anything to do with silly, superficial things that, that don't have the weight of God and the gospel behind them. Don't give yourself to trivialities. Don't be part of meaningless debates. Train yourself for godliness. Then Paul quotes another one of the trustworthy sayings. It's famous for several trustworthy sayings in this book. Another one here is verse 8. For while bodily, dis- bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul there... Is, this is one of my favorite sections in the letter. Paul is using an a athletic imagery to teach them something that's going to be completely countercultural for their ears about athletics. And I think it speaks to me because I wanted to be a professional athlete before I became a pastor. So you know, I understand what he means here. Um, now, the idea of having athletes in a society that, that, that we look up to is nothing new. For today, the NFL did not invent that idea. It goes all the way back for uh, for generations, years earlier. And the Greeks and Romans had it. They had the Olympics. And see, the the Greek mindset was to was to really think of man as the the measure of all things and worship the human body as sort of embodying that. The perfect formed human body was was the measure of all things. And athletics was a great way to pursue that. It was pursuing that idealized body. What does Paul say about that bodily training? He says, not that it is of no value, because certainly keeping your body in shape is of some value. But compared to godliness, it's of very little value. Very little value compared to godliness. Now, that's not an excuse to neglect your body. No, it is of some value. Godliness is of far greater value. Paul is telling Timothy to have the devotion that an athlete would have in subjecting their body to rigorous discipline and strict training, but, but to have that devotion not for you know, the perfectly fit form, have that devotion for the sake of godliness. Have that devotion to train himself in understanding the Bible, in, in having a godly character. How do you train yourself for godliness? Well, remember what Paul said earlier, the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is that Christ was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the world, taken up in glory. Training yourself for godliness means seeing that reality of Christ as being first and foremost and of most importance. Seeing that that reality of Christ and his death and resurrection, his justification, his session at the right hand of God. That transforms everything. Godliness, as we said before, is not tricks for fighting sin. Rather, godliness is understanding the reality of Christ and conforming your life to that reality. Now, why does Paul feel the need to command this to Timothy? Uh, In one sense, this idea of training for godliness doesn't seem at first sight to have any particular pastoral significance attached to it. 
you could find similar commands given to the whole body of Christ in other parts of the Bible. Why does Paul take time to tell Timothy this? Well, I think the answer is that there is a temptation for pastors to forget that the commands that they bring to others, the godliness that they try to engender in others, they must first apply to their own lives. And here's true confessions of a pastor. It's tempting to think that just because we've studied well and taught the Word of God, that necessarily means that, of course, we've applied it to our own lives. It's easy for us to believe that just because we tell other people what to do to be godly, that automatically, well, of course, we're godly because we taught that. We're inclined to think that just because we encourage others to rest in the gospel, that we are, of course, resting in that gospel as well. A pastor is tempted to think that just because he's taught others about the identity of Christ, that he has that identity himself. And that ain't necessarily so. And that's why the balk of Paul's exhortation to Timothy regarding what he should do in his pastoral ministry is not really about his preaching style as much as about his own godliness. Without that step of personal application, the pastor's teaching will will fall way short of what it was intended to do. Paul says something similar in the next paragraph. Look at verse 12. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You see, the pastor's job is not simply to tell people what the truth is. He also has to live his life as a compelling example and illustration of When Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, I think what he means there is, look, don't be immature. Don't be youth-like. Don't be foolish. Rather, be a mature believer that will stand as an example for all. That's why Paul says in verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Paul tells Timothy here to preach these things, and he tells him to practice these things. Now, I love the fact that Paul does not say, so that all may see your perfection. Does he notice that? I want you to notice that. He says, all may see your progress. No pastor will reach a state of sinless perfection, but all pastors should be growing in godliness, so that on the scale of godliness, people can look at them and say, I think they're more concerned about the things of God now than they were before. I think they're more passionate for the gospel than they were before. See, the example of progressive maturity is what pastors need to set before the people. Because that's what God wants of all people, right? No believer is going to be perfect. But all believers should be growing. That's why we love that quote that we put in the bulletin each week. This life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not rest, but exercise. Right? Pastors set the example, not by having attained sinless perfection, but by growing. And that's what God wants for all people. He wants us to be progressing. He wants us to be moving forward. Now, there's a lot we could apply from this section. But let me just press home one point. And that is, it might be somewhat self-serving here, but pray for your pastors to grow in godliness. Please pray for your pastors to be growing in godliness. Pray that we would be growing in our speech, in our conduct, in our life, in our faith, and in our purity. To put that really practically, let me encourage you to do this. 
When you hear something in a message that encourages you or convicts you or challenges you or amazes you, pray that we who preached it would be encouraged and convicted and challenged and amazed in the same way. And don't just assume that because we're the ones who said it, well, of course, it deeply impacted us. I mean, of course, that's our goal. We want it to deeply impact us. It doesn't happen automatically. We'd appreciate you to pray for us in that regard. So what have we seen so far? The pastor's job is to bring God's word to bear in the lives of the congregation. Pastors must do this by being nourished on the word themselves. And finally, why? Why this way? We'll look at verse 16. This is a sobering verse, I believe. Hope it's sobering for you. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Basically what he said so far, right? That's a summary. But now look at why. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Save typically means in the Bible, saved from eternal destruction. Saved from hell. It means you won't experience the full weight of God's wrath. And this passage is somehow linking the pastor's watching his life and doctrine with the salvation of his own soul and the people who hear him. However we understand exactly what Paul means here, it should add a sense of urgency to what we've talked about here. This is not what a pastor must do to get a promotion. It's about what a pastor must do to avoid hell, in some sense, and avoid his people having it too. And this ratchets that's up to a whole new level. So you'll pray for us more now, won't you? But what exactly does he mean here? I don't think he he means to tie directly the salvation of the people with the godliness of their pastor. Completely linked together. Uh, First, this would destroy the the notion... um, I'm sorry. Uh, Lost my train of thought for a second. So what does this do? Well, Well, let me explain what this means. But first, let me just point out that this connection between the pastor's spiritual growth and the salvation of the people destroys the idea that a pastor could neglect his own spiritual life for the betterment of his people. See, it's tempting for pastors to justify lack of attention to their own devotional lives on the fact that, well, I'm giving myself for others. I'm sharing for others. This passage won't let us do that. It's a false justification, precisely because what the people need from the pastor It's his own spiritual growth. One faithful pastor put it this way. What my people need from me more than anything else is my holiness. Now, but what does this mean? Uh, An apparent problem with this passage is, how can Paul say that a pastor will save himself and his hearers with his own spiritual life? You see, one of the things that's crystal clear in the Bible is this. People have not honored God in the way that they should have. They have chosen to do what they want rather than what God wants. They have not obeyed God and listened to him. As a result, God's just penalty is against them. But the good news that we call the gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He did what we were supposed to do. And then he died on the cross to take the penalty for all those who would believe in him. Friends, that's the gospel. And if you don't know that, that's the most important thing you're going to hear this morning. Back Uh, In Paul's trustworthy statement, he says, for while bodily training is of... But look back at Paul's trustworthy statement, verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, 
Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I think this helps us understand what Paul might mean here. Godliness, see what he's saying here. Godliness holds promise for the life to come. How does godliness hold promise for the life to come? Well, the answer, I believe, is that godliness is a sign that we have indeed trusted in Christ. And we are headed to the glorious future in heaven. It's not true that you get to heaven by your godliness in the sense that godliness is propelling you to there. If you die and stand before God in heaven and he says, why should I let you in here? And you say, because I've been godly, let me give you a heads up. That's not the right answer. The right answer is that Christ died on the cross for me and I trust him and I trust his godliness. That, that I've been godly is not going to get you in there. However, we can say that we're saved by godliness in the sense that godliness is what we experience along the way. John Calvin put it this way. He said, holiness is not the means to obtaining the kingdom, but it is the way to the kingdom. See the difference? For example, when I was first learning to drive, uh, one of the first places I drove was my grandmother's house, and she lived in Baltimore City. And I knew that I was on the right way because I would pass this certain high school. That was my marker. I'm, I'm on the right way. That high school did not get me there in any way, shape, or form. But passing it was a sign that I'm going the right way. I got there by going by the high school. One time I didn't see the high school and wandered around Baltimore City for three hours. That was not fun. Godliness is sort of like that high school. It doesn't get us to heaven. It has no value in and of itself to to push us there. It doesn't open the doors. But it serves as a sure marker that we are headed in the right direction. That's why God, Paul says here that godliness holds value as a promise for the life to come. Godly does, not, godliness doesn't get us there, but it points out that we are on the right way. Friends, if your Christian life does not take you through the path of godliness, you're probably not headed in the right direction. You're probably wandering around. And that should be a serious concern for you. Because godliness is such a great value, because it is a marker that we're on the right way, Paul says then, to this end we strive and toil. Paul is saying that we as as pastor, apostle, team, we are pouring our lives out for the godliness of our people. We're, We're struggling and we're striving to help the people be godly. A pastor's job is to strive and toil for the godliness of his people. So what do we see so far? Add these things up together. One, a pastor must hold before people the gospel and and the commands of God that they would grow in godliness. Two, a pastor's ability to do that is dependent upon his own spiritual growth. And three, we've seen that godliness is a sure sign or marker that we're headed in the right direction. You add those three up, and what do you get? We get that that a pastor must watch his life and doctrine so that he and the people around him will be saved that they will grow in godliness and know they're headed in the right direction. A pastor's watching his life and teaching doesn't actually make a person saved. No, that's dependent on Jesus. But it does help the context in which they can know that they are growing in godliness and discern whether or not they are on the way to heaven. Think about it. What happens if a pastor does not watch his life or his doctrine? Well, then he ends up preaching one way and then living another. 
That's really going to encourage the congregation to live holy. They'll think to themselves, if a pastor doesn't have to live this way, why should I? And what happens if a pastor doesn't watch his teaching? He might not then be accurately teaching the people what the Bible says about godliness. Remember, the mystery of godliness is what we need. And that is Jesus. A pastor must preach Jesus that the congregation would grow in their godliness. So friends, what can we learn from this? We learn, one, that godliness is important. Paul's assumption for why godliness is important for the pastor is that it's important for the congregation. See, the implication of the fact that pastors must be an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity is what? It is that those things don't matter at all for the congregation? No. It's that those things matter for the congregation. That's why they need to be an example. Paul doesn't tell the pastor he needs to be an example in his athletic figure. Why? Because it has no value. He tells him that he needs to be an example in godliness because it has great value. Godliness matters. It matters for the pastor because it matters for the congregation. And that's why God has given you pastors. He wants to help you. That's why we're here. We are here to help you grow in godliness. Friends, make use of that. Ask us to help you if you're struggling. We want to help you grow. That's why we're here. Nothing we do as your pastors is for your entertainment or your comfort. And it's not so that you'll like us better. Everything we do as your pastors is to set before you the gospel so that you would grow in godliness. And let me plead with you, make make use of that. We want to help you grow. But be encouraged even more that, that this is God's design. He has given the structure of the church in this way because God wants you to grow. He cares far more than we do about your godliness. He doesn't want you to remain isolated people, wandering aimlessly. He wants to gather his people together. He wants you to grow together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Will you follow him in that way? Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help us. We pray that we would make use, right use of the ministry that you've given us, the resources that you've given us. Lord, cause us to be a people who love you and rejoice in you and who receive your word as it really is the word of God. We receive it and it grows and bears much fruit in our lives. Lord, cause us as a congregation to not then grow independently of one another, to grow together with one another as our lives become more and more enmeshed with with each other as we're growing together. Lord, we pray that you would do these things for the good of your people and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.